Thanks, Rob. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13. I'm going to jump right into our study of Mark. And we'll cover the 13th chapter today. We may not cover it the way you would want us to. I'll warn you about that right from the beginning. Because if you've uh, read ahead, you know that we're going to be talking about uh, future things. And uh, some of you get really excited about that. A lot of people do. And uh, uh, we're going to cover the chapter, but we're going to do it in the way that I feel God wants us to today. Um, back in the 1800s, there was a religious group called the Millerites. They were led by a man named James Miller. So they took on his name, the Millerites. Now, one thing they were known for is predicting the return of Jesus Christ. They really believed that someday Christ would come back and the world would end as we know it. James Miller claimed that he could predict when Jesus would return. His first prediction was that Jesus would return during the year 1842. And so all of his people, his followers, got excited and they began to prepare for the return of Christ. They waited all year. 1842 came and went. Jesus had not returned. The world had not ended. James Miller decided that he had just tweaked things a little uh, wrongly, and so he set another date. He was convinced now that in October specifically October 22nd of 1844, Jesus would return and there would be the end of the world. And so once he had told this to his followers, all of his followers began to prepare for October 22nd, 1844. In fact, in a Philadelphia store, you would have found at that time a sign that said this, this shop is closed in honor of the King of Kings who will appear about the 20th of October. Get ready, friends, to crown him Lord of all. And a group of 200 Millerites left the city of Philadelphia. They gave up their occupations. Farmers left their crops in the fields, and they went to the hills and the mountains and the rooftops to wait. They wanted to be high enough to be the first ones to see Jesus when he came. Well, October 22nd, 1842, came and went. Christ did not return. The Millerites went down from their hills and mountains and rooftops uh, back to their life. And James Miller set another date. This time, more than five years out, uh, in 1849. But before that date came, James Miller died. And today, if you went to northeastern part of our country and found the cemetery he's buried in, this is what you would read on his tombstone. At the time appointed, the end shall be. <clears throat> when we come to Mark 13, one way you could <clears throat> describe Mark 13 is that it is Mark's version 
of the book of Revelation. It's Mark recording what Jesus said about future things. And, of course, Mark didn't have the book of Revelation. Um, The disciples that Jesus will say these things to didn't have the book of Revelation. The early readers of the book of Mark, once it was written, did not have the book of Revelation. And so they didn't have those writings to compare with Mark 13 or with what Jesus was saying. We have the book of Revelation, right? And so when we read chapters like Mark 13, we find ourselves thinking about Revelation and making comparisons because we think we know. Um, A lot of people say that Mark 13 Not counting Revelation is the most difficult chapter in the New Testament to understand. Makes sense. It's similar to Revelation, similar subject, but very difficult to understand. And so I want you to think about this before we jump into it. When Jesus spoke these words about the future to the disciples that day, do you think they understood everything he was saying? Later, after Mark had written these words that Jesus spoke, do you think the early readers of Mark 13 understood what Jesus was saying? One more question. As I have studied Mark 13, do you think I understand what it says? Not totally. And I'm not ashamed to say that. But we're going to look at it because it comes next. In, in our study of Mark 13 and see what we can glean from it. Uh, let's pray first. <clears throat> our Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom we have to study it. Thank you even for the difficult things, the things that aren't real easy to understand. But Father, I pray that by the end of this morning, we will know what we know and we will respond to what we know. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, before we get started, I just want to let you know that one of the main subjects in this chapter is the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. So if you would look at your study sheet, I want to give you a really quick history of the temple, since it's um, a main subject in this chapter. We'll just go back as far as Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. According to Daniel chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon Uh, came against Jerusalem, conquered them, and destroyed the temple. That's when he brought captives uh, like Daniel and those back to Babylon. But in that um, conquering of Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple that was there. After 70 years of captivity, a man named Ezra was sent back to Jerusalem to lead the rebuilding of the temple. And we see that in the book of Ezra as they rebuilt the temple after 70 years in captivity. In 162 B.C., a Greek ruler of Syria named Antiochus Epiphanes took Jerusalem, and he set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem as a god. And he did the most abominable thing you could do in the Jewish temple. He sacrificed pigs. (laughs) 
on the altar. Antiochus Epiphanes. Three years later, in 165 B.C., led by the Maccabees, the Jews took Jerusalem back. They took their temple back. And that's what they celebrate when they celebrate Hanukkah, the taking back of the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes. A few years before Jesus came on the scene, King Herod the Great remodeled and enlarged the temple in Jerusalem. It became this huge, beautiful, actually, campus. You know, we talk about megachurch campuses. That's what um, the temple in Jerusalem became after Herod the Great had finished his remodeling and enlarging. And on your sheet, you just have an artist's depiction of what the, the main temple part looked like. And then there was all kinds of uh, courts and, and other buildings all around it. In fact, when Herod the Great was done, the temple and its whole campus, all the facilities involved encircling the main temple, covered 35 acres. I was thinking of my dad's 40-acre pieces when he was farming. So I can picture, well, 30, almost that big. But with the, the main temple in the middle that you see here and all around it, all the courts and other buildings, it was amazing. Well, then Jesus came, and in about 33 A.D., which probably what we're going to read today was spoken by Jesus, uh, he talks about the temple, and we'll see that. Then Mark, in the late 50s A.D., would have written this down, written his gospel, Mark 13. And people began then to read it. And then in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came against Jerusalem and destroyed the temple again. Destroyed the temple. And there really is no temple there today. But according to 2 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation... The day will come when there will be what's called the man of lawlessness or the beast, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, He will come on the scene and he will set himself up in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. Let's go to Mark 13 then with that history of the Jewish temple in mind. As we learned last week, this is the Passover week. At the end of this particular Passover week, Jesus will be crucified and buried. And so that's when this is happening. Every day he's been coming into Jerusalem with his disciples, and every night he leaves Jerusalem and goes to the small town of Bethany outside the city to stay. He has just been in the city during the day, and we come to verse 1 of chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all those great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And so we start the chapter with some comments being made about the temple. As they're leaving... Uh, one of the disciples probably just looks back and 
and just makes this comment. It was such an impressive facility, such an impressive structure that, that he says, what massive stones. They say a lot of the stones used to build the temple were the size of uh, railroad boxcars, 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet wide, huge stones used to build this temple. And this disciple, it's right before his eyes. And they've been there during the day. And so he says as they're leaving, what massive stones. What a magnificent building. And then Jesus makes a comment about the temple that probably took the disciples back. He says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. What you're talking about, he says, will be destroyed. Verses 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And so now these four disciples get together with Jesus. They sit down with him, and they want to follow up on the comment Jesus made that the temple would be destroyed. It sounds unbelievable. And so they they have questions, two questions. The first one is, you know, when will this happen? When will these things happen? You, You say the temple is going to be destroyed. When? And then their second question is, what will be the sign that this is going to happen? Jews were all about signs, you know. And so they want to know, what are the signs that this is going to happen, when it gets close to when this is going to happen. I want to uh, plug in a little thought here. I'm going to suggest that the second question, what are the signs, had along with it this thought on the part of the disciples that in order for the temple to be destroyed, you pretty much are going to have to have the end of the world. I mean... How could this ever happen? Look at it. And I, I think that in their mind, they're thinking, well, that has to be the end of the world for that to happen. And so when they're asking for signs, let me suggest to you, they're not only asking for signs as to when the temple will be destroyed, but because they probably are thinking that for the temple to be destroyed, it would have to be the end of the world, that the two are connected, they want to know the signs for that, the end of the world. Because that's the only time in their minds the temple could be destroyed. So those are the two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And what are the signs that it will happen? And perhaps even thinking, when the end of the world will come. And so Jesus answers their questions in the rest of the chapter, five through the end. Keep in mind, the question basically has to do with the temple. It's a response to Jesus' question, or comment about the temple and then the questions. As you go through this, 
There are certain subjects Jesus brings up. Now, obviously, the temple. The temple is a big subject here because that's the comments, that's the questions. So as he's talking, we've got to think temple because that's the subject here. Secondly, Jesus does refer to the end. He uses that term. In verse 7, he says, but the end is still to come. And then down in verse 13, he talks about people who stand firm to the end. So in his response, the end seems to be a subject along with the temple. He also talks about a great distress. Um, He mentions it in verse 19. He says, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And so he's going to be talking about a distress, something really terrible that is unequaled, ever has been, ever will be. The worst thing ever. So he talks about that. And then he does seem to talk about his return. And that's in verse 26. He says, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he goes on to talk about that uh, happening. So he does talk about his return. Son of Man is uh, a term he uses for himself. So he does talk about his return. So those are kind of some of the subjects he talks about. Now, they ask for signs. So Jesus gives them signs. For instance, I see five signs. First of all, he says there will be deceivers and false Christs. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. Verse 21, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So one sign he brings up um, in responding to their question is that there's going to be a lot of deception. Uh, There's going to be. Uh, a lot of false teachers, a lot of false prophets, even false miracles, uh, that type of thing. Now, is he saying that's a sign before the temple being destroyed? Is he saying that's a sign before he comes back? Or is he saying that's a sign for both? I don't know. But he says that's a sign. A second sign would be wars and natural disasters. In verse 7, he says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So he talks about signs in the form of wars, in the form of natural disasters. Are they the signs of the temple being destroyed? Are they signs of the end and his return? 
or are they the signs for both? I don't know. But he talks about that. A third sign he brings up is persecution and suffering, starting in verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says there will be persecution and suffering. That will be one of the signs. Will the persecution and suffering be a sign leading up to the destruction of the temple? Or will persecution and suffering be the sign leading up to the end of the world, the return of Christ? Or will that be the sign for both? Not sure. Only Jesus knew what he was meaning, right? Another sign. Jesus calls it the abomination desolation. Isn't that a great term? And it's in uh, verse 14. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, destruction, standing where it does not belong, and I think that means in the temple, perhaps in the context here, uh, let the reader understand, and then he goes on to say it's time to get out of there. But a fourth sign is that this abomination that leads to desolation will be standing where it doesn't belong, probably in the temple. That term comes from Daniel chapter 9 in a prophecy there, abomination, desolation. And many people believe it was fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes took over the temple, uh, sacrificed his pigs and set himself up. That would be an abomination in the temple him taking his place there. And so, you know, maybe the disciples would be familiar with that term if they had read or been taught from Daniel. But he says one of the signs in answer to their question is that there will be this abomination, this terrible thing where someone takes a stand where he doesn't belong, uh, probably in the temple. And it leads to destruction. Is that the sign leading up to the destruction of the temple? Is that the sign leading up to the end of the world and the return of Christ? Is it a sign for both? A fifth sign that Jesus mentions here is that there will be calamity in the heavenlies. Verse 24. He says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now that sign sounds like prior to 
to the return of Christ, doesn't it? Because he describes that um, stuff that's going to happen in the heavenlies. And then he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man returning. But could that be tied in with the destruction of the temple? I mean, that was the question. When will the temple be destroyed and what are the signs? Do you see why this chapter can be difficult and always has been for people? Because the question that was being asked had to do with the temple and the temple being destroyed. When is this going to happen? What will be the signs? And maybe they were thinking it's going to have to happen at the end of the world. So in that sense, they are asking, what are the signs for the end of the world and the return of the Lord? Because they thought maybe that and the destruction of the temple went together. And so Jesus gives these signs. But we have these questions. Is he talking about the temple? Is he talking about his return? Is he talking about both? Are these signs true about both? Um, You have all that wondering as you go through this. And I'm just going to keep you wondering. Then he goes on and he talks about the unknown. He brings up some unknowns after he's given these signs and respond to their question. In verse 32, Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus says, there's a big unknown here. Nobody knows when this is going to happen. Is he talking about the destruction of the temple? Or the end of the world and the return? Which one? But he says, it's unknown. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Not even Jesus, when he was here, knew. That's what he's saying. And it looks like he was content with that. Think about that for a while. Those who may not be content not knowing all the details about the return of the Lord and the end of the world. It sounds like Jesus, when he was here, didn't know the day or hour. And it sounds like he was okay with that. He goes on to say, verse 34, It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Jesus talks about the unknowns here. After talking about all the signs, either of the temple being destroyed or end of the world and Jesus coming back or both, he says nobody knows when it's going to happen, the day or the hour. No one, not even the Millerites, not even James Miller, knows the day or the hour. And James Miller hasn't been the only one to set dates, right? Jesus said nobody knows. At least when he was here, not even he knew. Then he goes on to give some instructions. And throughout this answer he gives to the disciples, he puts in these destructions, and they're very similar, these instructions. 
And what he says would be like verse five. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out for this deception. Verse nine, you must be on your guard. And then he talks about persecution and suffering. Verse 23, he says, so be on your guard. Right after he's talked about false Christs, false teachers, false miracles. Then in verse 33, he says, be on guard. Be alert. Because you don't know when this is going to happen. And then starting in verse 35, he says, keep watch because you don't know. Verse 36, he says, don't let him find you sleeping when he comes back. Be awake, be watching. And then the very last word, watch. So there's a similarity in the instructions here as he goes through. Watch, be alert, be on your guard. Don't be sleepy, don't be inactive, don't be passive. Watch, be on the alert, guard yourself. Those are the instructions. So now I'm going to tell you a very sad thing that you will not appreciate. That's all we're going to talk about, Mark 13. Um, What we know is that there's a comment made about the majesty of the temple. Jesus makes a comment about the destruction of the temple which leads to questions about the destruction of the temple. When is it going to happen? And what are the signs? You must be talking about the end of the world, Jesus. What are the signs of that happening? And then Jesus talks about some signs. He uh, lets them know that no one can know when this is going to happen and then gives the instructions to watch, be prepared, Uh, Be alert, be on guard, uh, don't be passive, don't fall asleep, that type of thing. And it leaves us with the questions, and you can read about all the opinions on this. Um, You know, is he talking all the way about just the temple being destroyed? Is all of this about that? There's some good argument for it because that was the initial question. Is he talking about the end of the world and his return? Is that all he's talking about? Could be. He's very clear about his return. Or is he using all the same words to talk about two things at the same time? That all of this is true about the destruction of the temple, but also the end of the world and his return. See, those are the questions people ask, and they argue about it, and they debate about it. And one of the reasons they have a lot of ammunition is that they know revelation. But the disciples didn't have revelation, right? The first people that read the book of Mark and this chapter didn't have the book of Revelation. This is all they had. You know, until Matthew came along and wrote and recorded this same conversation, and Luke recorded the same conversation. But Mark was the first one. So this is all they had. That's all they had to go by. So, two things that we can know for sure. All right? 
after looking at this, two things we can know for sure. Number one, Jesus was right. The temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in 33 A.D. That means, what, my math, 37 years later, it happened. Mark wrote these words in the late 50s A.D. So that means about 12 years after Mark wrote this, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. So one thing we know for sure, the temple was destroyed. Jesus was right. He said it would be destroyed. It was unbelievable, but it happened. So we can be sure of that. It's our history. We can look back and see it happened. The second thing we can know for sure is our future. And that is that Jesus is returning. He says here, the Son of Man will come in his glory. He will return. And if Jesus could be right about such an amazing thing as the temple, that majestic, huge building being destroyed, I think he could be right about his return. And we know he talked about this more often than this. And we know all the other Bible writers in the New Testament talked about his return. We can be sure, right? He will return. We don't know all the details. We don't know all the ins and outs of the signs. We don't know exactly what he meant here or there or here in Mark 13. We don't know if he was just referring to the temple or just the end of the world and his return or both at the same time. We don't need to know that necessarily. All we need to know is he's coming back. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And how do we do that? Let me suggest to you the way we get prepared for the return of Christ, which we know is going to happen, is not to spend all our time trying to figure out when, all the details. That's not how we prepare. Three things in getting ready for the return of Christ. Number one, salvation. We are ready for the return of Christ when we have trusted him for salvation. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's there. It's available. It's been communicated to you. The salvation that comes by the grace of God. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. See, it's a hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people 
that are his very own. Paul goes on in chapter 3 to talk about this salvation by grace. But what he's saying is that the return of Christ is our hope. It's the hope of those who have experienced salvation, who have trusted Christ for salvation. That's our hope. And so we wait for that, for his return, because we know it's going to happen. We don't know all the details, but we know it's going to happen, because he said it would. It's our hope because of salvation. If you have not trusted Christ for salvation, you don't have that hope. You're not ready. You don't have the hope of spending eternity with Jesus. You don't have that kind of hope. It only comes through salvation in trusting Christ. So that's the first way to get ready for the return of Christ. Salvation. The second is sanctification. That's a big word. It just means growing, becoming more and more like Christ. And isn't that what uh, Paul says here in, in Titus? He, he says about the grace of God that brings salvation, verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives as we wait. Part of being ready, along with salvation, so we have that hope, is to be growing in our relationship with Christ, to be becoming more and more like Jesus, It's not going to a hill or a mountaintop or a rooftop and just waiting. That's not how you prepare. You grow. You live the life. You become more and more like Jesus. In fact, uh, the Apostle John put it this way in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. You have that hope? You have salvation? Then as you wait for him to come, you are purifying yourself. You are becoming more and more like Jesus. You are growing actively. So to be ready for the return of Christ, it's salvation, it's sanctification, growing, becoming more like him. And third, it's service. It's serving. First Peter chapter 4. And after you hear what I'm going to say in the next five minutes to close, you may want to have someone stand out in the parking lot and warn people who are coming to the second service. First Peter 4, 7. Notice how this section starts. The end of all things is near. It's coming. Therefore, this is what you do. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Because the end is near, pray, love, show hospitality, serve with your gifts. 
That's how you get ready. That's how you prepare. That's how you wait. We go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And then notice the context of these instructions. And all the more as you see the day approaching. As we see the day approaching when Christ will return, and he will, we are to be drawing near to God, holding unswervingly to the hope we profess, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, meeting together, encouraging one another, even more as you see the day approaching. Step it up. You don't close down everything and go to the hilltop, go to the mountain, go to the rooftop and wait. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is coming. We step it up. And I close with 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Last verse, verse 58. Um, you can read the whole chapter, but Jesus has been talking about resurrection. You know, future resurrection. He's been talking about uh, the return of Christ. He's been talking about uh, us receiving our new bodies. It's all this future stuff, this great stuff, when Jesus comes back. But notice how he ends it. Therefore, because of all that, that future stuff, my dear brothers and sisters, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. And here it is. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says our response to those future things is that we stand firm. We let nothing move us. And we always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Now, you could say, oh, he's probably talking to pastors there. He's probably talking to future missionaries, right? Go back to chapter 1. He's talking to believers in the church in Corinth. This is for Christians, believers. And he's saying because of this future truth, the return of Christ and all that it brings, be steadfast, firm, and give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Here's the question I want you to just reflect on all week. Has there ever been a time in your Christian life when you have given yourself fully to the work of the Lord. It's being taught here, isn't it? Because of the hope we have, he's coming back and all the wonderful things. 
we are to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Has there even been a time in your Christian life when you can say you gave yourself fully to the work of the Lord? Uh, We're not talking about everybody becoming a pastor or a foreign missionary. The work of the Lord involves so many things. Hospitality, serving with your gifts, um, spurring each other on to love and good deeds. I mean, just the things that we already read, and there's much more. The work of the Lord, serving, active. That's how we get ready. Salvation, know the Lord. Sanctification, be growing, becoming more like Christ. And service, be active. Don't let him find you sleeping, Jesus said. Sitting on some hilltop, on some mountaintop, on your roof, just waiting for that first glance of Christ. That is not taught. It's activity. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. I'm going to get on my soapbox here because I am the counselor recruiter for Bible camp. And this time of year, you wouldn't know how many times I have people say to me, I cannot give a week to counsel at camp. And you know what the most common answer is? I'm too busy. I have too many things to do this summer. Maybe you've been on the speaking side of that. I'm too busy to give myself fully to the work of the Lord. There's too much going on for me to give myself fully to the work of the Lord. If you've been on the speaking side of that ever, let me say it again. I want you to be on the listening side of that, okay? I am too busy to give myself fully to the work of the Lord. You hear that? You hear what that sounds like? Or, I have so much going on that I just can't give myself fully to the work of the Lord. You hear that? You hear those words? Jesus is coming back. Temple was destroyed. He was right. He's coming back. He'll be right again. And the way you get ready is you receive salvation, enter a relationship with Jesus. You actively grow and become more like Jesus. And you give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. He needs to find you serving. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your word. There's so much of it um, we don't understand, and that's okay. Your son didn't understand it, at least didn't know when it was going to happen when he was here. But he said it would happen. He said the temple would be destroyed. Hard to believe, but it was. He said he'd come back. He will. We believe it, Father. And may we be ready. May we be people who are saved, who are growing, and who are serving when our Savior returns. In his name we pray. 
Amen.